Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever send money abroad? When you do, you should use TransferWise. Don't use a bank or PayPal. That's like going to McDonald's for a salad. They have it, but other people do it way better. Instead, use TransferWise. TransferWise always has a great exchange rate and a super low fee, which is probably why they already have 4 million customers. And their borderless account lets you hold over 40 currencies at once and convert them whenever you like. Test it out today for free at TransferWise.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. That's TransferWise.com slash Chang, or download the app today. Today's Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight shows you a select list of incredible deals at cool hotels with unsold rooms. And even though their name's Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last minute bookings. You can also book in advance. Perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, three-day weekends, staycations, road trips, business trips, booking a place with a pool, and more. So to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, go to hoteltonight.com. Download the app now. to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today's guest is the chef Josh Geens of the three Michelin star restaurant Saison, and he has recently opened a new restaurant venture called Angler, which by all accounts is a smashing success, serving incredibly delicious food. Josh is one of the best chefs in America. I do believe he might be one of our greatest talents, but I wanted to talk a little bit about today. We are recording this November 6th. I got a call for the Michelin guide and I bring this up because Josh has three Michelin stars and we went to cooking school together and I've known a lot of people that have gotten three Michelin stars. It is something that you learn pretty quickly when you enter, I guess, the world of fine dining. It was essentially a uh, guide printed by the tire company in France to encourage people to travel or where to eat. And they gave rosettes, which are essentially stars to the best in the class in France. And it became synonymous with some very important chefs of the past 60 years of, of where to eat. And it is and has become the benchmark for a certain class of restaurants. It is full of problems too, which we won't get into or I won't get into. And as a person, I don't know if I need to embrace it, but for all of me, I still, to my core, respect the Michelin guide because it's something I can't break. I'm sure it's a contradiction to someone that might be listening, but I don't know if I'll ever be able to break the hold of what the Michelin guide means. So today, every year, it's like one of the worst days of the year. And a lot of chefs may not tell you this, but I don't like it at all. It's like getting medical results back and your SAT scores and your college acceptance letters on like the same day. And right around this day, like the first week of November, you get a call and they tell you, congratulations, ex-chef, you got one star, two stars. I've never heard three stars, but again, many of my peers and many of my friends have. And, you know, today was funny because they called and my phone went out right when they said, and you got X stars. And I was like, uh, (laughs) I had to tell them like, I'm sorry. I didn't hear anything you said. So my heart dropped. I didn't know. Right. And our only starred restaurant is Momofuku Co. I did a pod and a uh, event for the moth several years ago when I heard that Michelin guide gave Co two stars. I've said 
to myself and I've told some others, that was probably the low point in my career and how I felt the night that I found out that Co got two Michelin stars because there was an overwhelming sense of responsibility. And did I earn this? There's imposter syndrome at the highest levels that I've ever felt. This guidebook that hands out these awards to chefs, these stupid stars mean so much. And the pinnacle of the mountain is to get three stars. Some chefs have multiple three-star restaurants. And there's a lot of work that needs to go into it. For years, I think we were dead set on trying to get three stars, but really maybe not. Also, it's like they tell young cooks that you want to be part of the two Michelin star crew that's trying to get to the third star because that's when a restaurant is trying to sacrifice everything. That's where you're going to have the best food. You're going to, you know, it's almost like this crazy playoff run, right? Like you want to be part of these teams that defeated all the odds and obstacles and they wind up getting validation. That very highest honor you could possibly get is three Michelin stars for an industry that really doesn't pay you that much. And for all the sacrifice you give, you sacrifice everything. There's so much blood, sweat, and tears and broken psyches and souls that go into having that accolade of three Michelin stars. I don't know what that tastes like. I've seen it in a variety of other people. And I'm torn, right? Like today we got two stars and I'm so fucking happy. And I'm more happy about maintaining two stars than I've ever been. Because I'm wondering, it's not like I don't want three stars. I want three stars, but I don't want the burden. And I'm told, oh, you have two stars, you have to push to get three stars. And I think this is a little bit about the conversation and some of the things I've learned uh, over the past year with the passing of Tony Bourdain and Dave Cho and I talking about a lot of the stuff about making sure you have enough to swim back is the sort of mantra, not the Gattaca phrase that really propelled me for so much of my life of leave nothing for the swim back. I've seen that road. I've seen that trajectory for a lot of chefs that I'm close to. And... Once you get that honor, it becomes a burden. It becomes something you're going to lose. Getting an award where you realize, I cannot go higher than this. I can accumulate more Michelin stars, but I'm at a point now where the only thing that can really happen is someone taking it away. And this leads into a giant conversation that has been led through Europe and France of these great chefs turning away their stars because of the pressure. and. You know, there have been chefs that have killed themselves literally over the prospect of losing a star because all of their meaning is in this award. And if you're not of the industry, you're probably going to be like, why would you do that? How could you even think about harming yourself if you lose a star? That just seems so ridiculous. And it is ridiculous. But try putting yourself in the shoes of a chef that has had nothing other than working their ass off to get this one honor. And it's not like they have or we have the opportunity to be reflective when you are in a pressure cooker that's designed to get those stars. It's really hard to sort of turn your back to it. And here I am talking about this. Would I love three stars? Absolutely. But I also don't know if we're mentally ready for it. And maybe we're a restaurant that doesn't deserve it. And I'm finally at a point now where I'm okay with that. I think that what is most important is that we're making our staff happy and we can always be happier. We're serving great food. We're a profitable, busy restaurant, and we're doing food that's meaningful to us. And what I mean was we're not ready for it is I think we are not mature enough to accept higher accolades because I think it would 
fuck us up in the head. And we have some more growing up to do. And I believe wholeheartedly that when we reach that level of maturity at Co, if we get three stars or not, it doesn't fucking matter. All that matters, again, is how people leave the restaurant. They don't need awards. They don't need stars. And are we trying to cook for awards? Are we trying to cook for the people around us? Are we trying to cook for the guests presently in our restaurants? And that's an answer I can't provide today because... People covet restaurants, they collect restaurants, and it's about sort of crossing things off your bucket list because food has become this experiential thing that you need to have. And not only do you have the Michelin Guide, you have the top 50. And I see all of this as something that is a quest for power and authority. And I don't know if I'm ready to accept any of those things. And I see how hard it is for my friends that go through this, what is ultimately relatively meaningless to get these great honors. So I'm torn. One hand, I fucking love it, and I love the recognition it deserves to the team, not just the individual. But these team members work so fucking hard that to be able to be told that your work is not just validated, but it belongs in this pantheon of great restaurants. You're doing something right. What needs to be corrected is all the broken souls along the way. At what cost is the three Michelin stars worth it? And I have to ask myself is, I don't know. So currently, and this can change, this is not me backing down, but I've come to some kind of conclusion where I hope we sort of get the longest tenure of two Michelin stars ever. I'm totally happy with that. And by no means does that mean we're not trying to get better. As a restaurant, we're going to struggle every day to get better. Sue Wong Ruiz and the whole team at Co, they're going to work so diligently and hard to make the best food and the best service while still being accountable for their mistakes. And I just want to acknowledge that. Like, that's the first time in a long time where I'm like, that's good enough. And if we get higher accolades, fantastic. But I don't want us to sacrifice ourselves to get there. And you know what? I don't know if I would have ever said that in the past. I think Isaac Lee and all these millennials that I've been hanging out with have been rubbing off on me. But if we get it, and by no means do I think we're going to water down what we're doing, but like, we're going to get it and we're going to get it on our terms, not on anyone else's terms. And that's a really tough subject in our industry today. And I bring this up because when Saison got three stars, you know, we opened up a couple years before them. I was so jealous of Josh. I was like, what the fuck's this guy doing? How's he on this crazy trajectory where he opens up something that was a pop-up and he opens up a restaurant that is really different. And then he moves and he gets three stars in the current location. And you know what? Ultimately, I'm happy for them. I was happy for any of my friends that get three Michelin stars. I am so ecstatic for them because of the sacrifice that goes in. But like, I remember asking him, what's next? You know, that burden is so fucking heavy that it can be debilitating. And I would really urge you to listen to this podcast and know that there's going to be a lot of things that are too esoteric if you're not from the culinary world and the, the history of culinary chefs and techniques. But you're talking about an individual that comes from Jacksonville, which not to typecast the state of Florida and Jacksonville, but the last place you would expect one of the greatest chefs we've ever produced is from Jacksonville and how unique his story is to how he got there. And there's certainly a correlation to his experience as a young person, his formative years and how just unique his life has been, which has caused him to create food that is unique to everyone else. And it is done at such a high level that is controversial because it's expensive and all these things. But 
listen, like, I think you're dealing with a true master of the culinary craft. And you know what? Like that should be enough. He is solely dedicated on getting the best product. That's all he gives a shit about. And I admire his passion for product and getting the best possible foods to cook with because that's crazy passion. And all of a sudden, and maybe you can understand this in other forms of whatever you're doing. If you've taken the road less traveled and you are doing the job that you wanted to do and you've taken the risk and you've been successful at it, so often you can get distracted with other shit. And for all the good things that awards can do, the bad shit of awards, particularly something like the Michelin Guide, is that it can create unnecessary burdens. It can be burdensome to the point where you don't want to do it anymore. And I look at restaurants in France, most recently, the son of the great chef Michel Bra, probably one of the most iconic restaurants in Lyon, France. They gave up their Michelin stars. And I think a lot of people out there, I was like, why would you do that? They questioned it. And I had nothing but sympathy. And I wanted to give that entire team a hug because that takes a lot of courage to do something different and to risk it all again. And I feel like that's sort of where Josh is at. He's done this and he's sort of not weighed down by the success of Cezanne, but like we're growing as people. And Josh has all these other things that he wants to express in food. And I think we're always hesitant as to what's going to happen. Are we going to get punished because we do something that this award system doesn't like? And I hope that's not the case, right? Like when you have someone like Josh, who has a lot of innovative, unique stories to tell on a plate of food, we should encourage it. And I'm sort of, I guess, just tired of the physical and mental toll that these awards are doing to my peer group. We recorded this podcast with Josh a couple months ago, but part of this was anticipation of the Michelin Guide. So it's coming out today. I wanted to just get some stuff off my chest as to what the Michelin Guide means. And I could talk way more about it but sort of like set you up with where Josh is at in my book is like, listen, like he's just given the keys to Laurent Gras. If you don't know who Laurent Gras is, he might be one of the greatest chefs ever in the history of the world. Three mission stars at four different restaurants in his career. You know, I think you're seeing someone in the midst of growth. And um, I thought it was something to talk about today. So we got two stars. I'm thrilled for my team at Co. And if you listen to this, and you're in the, the culinary arts and you want to get something off your chest, share with me. You know, like, I think we need more solidarity in our business. It's uh, still too insular in terms of how people feel and how people deal with the pressures. And you know what? We're even talking about people that have had success with awards. Most people don't. And it's a slippery slope. And uh, this business is too fucking hard without the solidarity that I think we're lacking. So I will shut up and uh, let you guys listen to a long podcast with Josh Skeens. Welcome, Chef Josh Skeens, Thanks, to buddy. the house. So if you don't know Josh, Josh is one of the great chefs, I'm not going to say in America, in the world, with a completely unique point of view. We go way back. We attended culinary school in the same time. So we've known each other since the year 2000, which is fucking crazy. And he has had one of the more remarkable careers, I think, in American sort of um, high-end dining. And I will compliment him in a little bit as to how that happened. But 
uh, one of the few, I would say, real sort of self-trained chefs, even though that's not necessarily true. And his vision as to how he's created his food at one of the great restaurants in America, Saison, which is three Michelin stars. I think it's fascinating because he merged together two kinds of cuisines in a way that had not been ever done before. And he's opening up a new restaurant called Angler in San Francisco. Yeah. And by the time this airs, it will have already been open. An avid gamesman, fisherman, and I would say great gourmand as well. Knows where the good things are to eat and drink in the world. And I know a lot about you, but I don't know if the guests today know anything because you rarely do (laughs) interviews. That's quite the introduction. I don't know if I can live up to all that stuff. (laughs) I'm going to sort of uh, say one thing to make him completely embarrassed. I... There are a lot of uh, there's a lot of things changing in the world today in terms of who we deem as heroes and whatnot. And I think for a long time, for a lot of male chefs, it was probably Marco Pierre White, who was the youngest three mission star chef in the UK and got three stars, three mission stars at Harvey's, and was known for being a lot of things. But uh, if you take away a lot of the more questionable things about Marco. One of the things I think is unequivocal was his genius for making French food, even though he had never been to France, right? Yeah. Uh, never been to Italy either, I don't think. And one of the things that I think that Josh did, and I say this behind your back, is I think he's the closest thing we've ever had to Marco Pierre White in America, because you have synthesized some weird, and I say this, dreamlike state of what, if you did merger of Japan and France, made with Bay Area ingredients. And in a way, with with who you are, it's like strange in the best possible way. And I think one of the ways you've been able to do that is you had never been there. You had never been to Japan and you'd never been to France. And so much of your creativity, I think, was through sheer imagination. And I don't know where the fuck you got a lot of those <laughs> ideas I'd never from. been anywhere. You'd never been anywhere. Yeah. So... That is the highest compliment I've ever given you to your face. <laughs> well, I appreciate that it's public now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we know, from the world. We, we know each other well. So, but the funny thing is, is as much as I know Josh, and I'll shut the fuck up in a little bit, like I don't, not many people really know too much about you. Yeah, I, I, I think that for the majority, I've just not done media at all. And I think that's because I sucked at it largely, right? <laughs> And so, you know, it's a learning process to try to, you know, just talk. Well, because of that nature, and you know this, in your peer group, or if people had to ask about, hey, have you uh, been to Cezanne, uh, or when it was, especially when you guys were at the old mission location, what would people, what do you think people would say about you when they said, hey, you heard about the chef Josh Keens? I don't even want to know. Come on. I don't know on. if I want to, I, you know, I don't know, man. It's a, it's total guess for me, but I bet you know. Yeah, I definitely know. <laughs> what, but come what, on, what you got to, come on, have some self-awareness. What do you think it was? Imagine that time. This is probably what, you eight, mean, nine years ago. Opened? Yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. I don't know, man. I mean, it's, I think it was a weird setup, so I have no idea. I was, I, I opened this little, you know, we threw together a few bucks and we opened this, this, it wasn't even a restaurant. It was just like a one day event <laughs> pop-up thing where we had to wheel all of the shit out of storage into this event space and then wheel everything back in at the end of the night. We had no idea what we were doing. 
So who knows? I, mean, I can only imagine the but, things but, people But part would say. of that you don't know is because you were so like, and this is part of your personality. And it's weird because I feel like I can translate Josh for people. You are probably one of the more I think you mis- can translate better than I can translate myself. Misunderstood culinary figures. Oh, yeah. Talking to journalists, I think you can have the potential to rub people the wrong way and have. Yeah. You say what's on your mind, oftentimes in a, a fashion that is very blunt. And this is coming from some another person like me that like understands that. And I also know who you are. And I was like, all this time I would hear this, these, this sort of the myth of who you are. And a lot of our misunderstandings only increase because you would never talk to anyone. So you became this enigma. Yeah. And I think it served you well. Well, for the record, I never did anything to rub anyone the wrong way <laughs> no, on purpose. No, 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 that's, and that's, <laughs> so a, that's the thing. It wasn't, it wasn't about you rubbing the people the wrong way. It was because you didn't want to talk to people. They didn't know. You were so focused on fucking opening up a restaurant and doing your cuisine that the last thing you gave a shit about was the, the, the optics of it. Yeah. You only gave a shit about what's on the plate. Yeah. I was just trying to figure it out. I was trying to figure out myself. I was trying to figure out how to cook, how to make quality, how to get to that. I, I had this thing in the back of my mind, this, you know, this place that I imagined and I was just trying to get there. And that's why I, I'm, I'm not decoding, but I know that there was a lot of not misrepresentation of who you are, but it was like, and I know this because like I'm a some, somewhat similar, like churlish or not wanting to talk or not being, uh, I wouldn't say media savvy. You just didn't fucking, it wasn't on your radar. Yeah, it wasn't at all. It was zero. I just, I thought that that was a distraction from the kitchen at that time. And that's the thing is like, I, I think those that know you are like, yeah, that's just Josh. And you've carved out a way for being a chef that is not of the modern like way, right? You mean, which way is that? It was of the old way. Like, I'm going to fucking do it on what's on the plate yeah, and only what's on the fucking plate. Well, I thought that, you know, you put your head down and you work in silence and that's your, that's, you know, that's what you do. And that, that was, and I thought at that point that that was really like, if you just do that, everybody will notice. And did people did notice. They did notice. But things became a little bit more obtuse for you because all of a sudden you were sucked into a world where like, wait, I have to express my feelings. I have to talk about my philosophy. And I think that's fucking hard. Not everyone wants to talk about that shit. Well, also, I think I was just trying to figure out what it was in the first place. I don't even think I even knew. I, I didn't, I don't think I really knew until the last couple of years. And I think it's taken me this long to figure out even what I was doing, even what my food was. So let's back this up. You were born and raised in Florida. Jacksonville, Florida. The swamp. Jacksonville, Florida. You really don't want to go there (laughs) for any reason. (laughs) I mean, it's cool to grow up because you're like, you know, you get to play with like snakes and alligators and shit and fish and all that stuff. And there's outdoors. But otherwise, as soon as I knew that Jacksonville was was in Florida. (laughs) Was not the epicenter of the universe. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay to take a shit on Florida. Which was like 15. Yeah. It's okay. If you're from Florida, you're a different breed. You're a different person. Wouldn't you agree? I got out of there early. Where did you go? I went to Boston. Moved to Boston. I had family in Boston. Went to Boston. And uh, I was there for a few years, back and forth. Went to school in New York. Uh, and then finally came out here, uh, to San Francisco, probably you were, uh, like you, 2003. But how old were you when the FCI? That was 2000. So what was that? I was 20? 20? Yeah. And you had also already spent time in China, right? Yeah. How yeah. the hell that happened? Well, uh, why so do I know your life story better than you? What the yeah, fuck? Yeah, that's a long story. I, I don't <laughs> think about these things. So, like, so growing up in Florida, there was I, I started martial arts when I was probably five years old, and 
I just kind of traced my lineage back to make a long story short. And so I, I traced it from Florida to Boston to New York to China and then finally to San Francisco for the last surviving teacher that was alive at the time in that system that I was studying. And what was that system? It's called Bakwa. What's it's like that? A, it's just a, it's a Chinese martial art. And I'm going to say if you are going, if someone's ever going to do like a scholarly uh, review of your life, the martial arts is absolutely top of the list for who you are as a person. It really is. It's it's actually, you know, I didn't even think that I, cooking was an accident, man. It wasn't even like I didn't necessarily mean to cook. It, it was one of those things where I think I realized I had to pay some bills. I had no career trajectory other than martial arts. I thought that's what I was going to do my whole life, teach martial arts, open a school. Uh, and, and I guess I just kind of fell into cooking. Did you grow up? I mean, I know at Saison you have a couple of recipes from your grandma. I don't know if that's true or not, but this is a good story because they're delicious. The biscuits. (laughs) They're really fucking good biscuits. But um, did you grow up in Jacksonville being like, I love food? I I think, uh, I don't know, it's a hard question to answer. Because you have a fucking insanely developed palate that you would not associate with Jacksonville, Florida. So if not, I hate to stereotype Jacksonville, but I am. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I think that came from being in the woods, man. I think so. So let me back up a little bit. So basically, uh, you know, when I was, practicing martial arts, there was a period of time where I didn't even eat meat. Like I renounced meat, then fish. Then I became vegan. Eventually it was no, it was just plant life. And so I spent the majority of my days in the woods, you know, four hours a day practicing martial arts, eating like berries and leaves. I feel like that's what kind of recalibrated your palate at that point. And how old were you when you were basically young Tarzan in Jacksonville, Florida? <laughs> no, I, that was in, I moved out of Florida. Oh. That was, that was, uh, so, I, so there's a, there's a thing that I skipped over, which was Atlanta. So I stopped in Atlanta <laughs> for a minute for a year and I lived in this Japanese temple. And, uh, and this is fascinating. And, and, and I lived in the Japanese temple and there's this old little monk who was this old Japanese dude that's probably like 70, 65, maybe at the time looked like he was 40. And, uh, we just practiced martial arts and ate berries. And cleaned. And you And how old are you? I think it was 19 at that time. 18? 18. And, and, 18. and if you had some friends around the, your teenage years, what would they have said? They're like, this guy's off his rocker. Well, yeah, because I went from, I, so I went from being off the deep end in terms of being like a delinquent child to a teenager and, and just hanging around the wrong people in Florida to- What kind of wrong things were you doing? Everything. I mean, anything you can imagine- probably been down that road and so i can't imagine <laughs> give me a no, give me no, a taste just like, give just, me a taste no just just drugs and violence and shit like that and 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 it was just it was just it was purely from you know being around the wrong people at the wrong time and how did you and fall into martial arts i i lived in a you know there was there a lot of the neighborhoods i lived either on the edge of or in were really shitty neighborhoods a lot of violence and florida is just irrational as fuck it's a really <laughs> irrational it's just a ridiculous place and so you know it's really easy to get cast into that crowd so martial arts saved your life gave you focus basically yeah yeah and so i went from that to a complete 180 at a certain point and in, into martial arts and i thrust myself back into martial arts because there was a period of a couple of years there where i went off the deep end in terms of getting in trouble uh and then you know when i really started to get devote myself back to martial arts i i went in 100 percent. i went all in And that's all I did, you know, six hours a day and basically lived like a monk for like a good four years. And then 
you recalibrate your palate because you're a vegan. I'm imagining like a young Steve Jobs, but just some martial arts. <laughs> <laughs> I know what that looks like. <laughs> uh, what epiphany did you have? Be like, fuck it, I'm going to cook. There's, I mean, pictures of me, making, there's pictures of me when I was a kid, when I was like four years old, when I had like a Chef Boyardee hat on and a mud pie in the backyard. And so I, I think that it was always interesting to me, but I can't really look back and say that it was something that I, I was excited about other than those pictures. I remember making food for like my grandparents or... Do you, do you let people down when they say like, hey, what moment led you to cooking? And you tell them, well, nothing really. Like it happens to me all the time. It's like, oh, how'd you get cooking? Uh, because... Uh, I don't know. Like it sort of interested me. I didn't have any money to eat. Yeah. <laughs> basically People it, have this know? romanticized idea that like everyone that wound up in this business is because they loved fucking cooking. Except that like maybe it was the only job you could get. <laughs> that was for me. Honestly, that was the only, at the time that was the only job I could get. I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I you know, I didn't go to school. And so cooking school was the only school I could get into. I think at that point I dropped out of high school. Uh, when I was young and I, and I, you know, devoted myself to martial arts and I, and I wound up when I went to Boston getting my GED. So I don't think I could have done anything else anyway, if I wanted to. And in cooking school, you go to FCI. Um, and I always remember you being just not talkative, but I don't remember why, but I was like, man, Josh is such a dick. <laughs> is that silence is, is, yeah, makes I don't you know an why, asshole but instantly. I just was like, that guy's a fucking dick. And like, we knew each other, but that's just, I'm telling you, like the first thing that crossed my mind when I first met you, I was like, I think this guy's a fucking dick. That's funny. Cause all I remember <laughs> you is talking about noodles. I was like, this guy's a fucking idiot. <laughs> Do it open at like a noodle shop at the French Culinary School. Do you think that we're probably the only less than five people in our group that wound up still in the business? I think so, man. I, I don't even, I can't think of any other people that are still in it. Do you think that people need to go to cooking school? No, definitely not. No. I don't think so. I mean, I th you know, that's also that at the same time, that's not anything against cooking school because it, you know, it's it's only beneficial to a certain point. But you know, it's kind of like going to law school, or maybe even a little less than that. It's like it's like it's like maybe complete. I think it's like completing. No, depends on what kind of lawyer you are. If you go days, to a but, really shitty law school and you go about halfway and then you drop out, that's yeah. probably what cooking school is like. It doesn't really teach you what you need to know. And I certainly wouldn't hire you as my lawyer if that was you know together. <laughs> Do you so. feel that? Um, and this is my opinion. And yeah, I'm looking for a complete agreement here is at some point, And I think when we applied for cooking school, we, there was no internet. There was no way of knowing what was around the corner. If you wanted to pursue a career in the culinary arts, you just had no idea. Yeah. You could get a job in a kitchen, but like there was not enough information out there. Right. Like you had the French laundry cookbook. You had like maybe kitchen confidential hadn't even come out really. I think by then. And it was still sort of unknown and I, and I'm not blaming it. I, I went, I graduated in retrospect. Did I have to graduate? No, I think you would have learned as much. And I learned more just working in kitchens for free and just doing shit work all day long. I totally understand that school can be beneficial for people. Not everyone. I think though that how many career changers have you seen drop out? How many people have dropped out of the profession of cooking in general, just cooks that you've had? I mean, I feel like it's a good, like, 90%. 90%. At, I would say at probably, minimum, right? I think it's 95% yeah. washout rate. Yeah. And if you were a culinary school that had kids, and you're, it's almost like a Ponzi scheme. You need people to give you tuition nonstop. You sell them the dream. You graduate, you're going to get a job. Guess what? You're going to get a job anyway <laughs> without a, a, a culinary degree. You will learn. I'm not anti-education. I think it's right for some people, but it's not 
the the goal that they're they're preaching. I don't think it actually matches up because there are so many people that wash out that quit the culinary arts because it's so fucking hard. That I think the best thing you can do is probably go to a good state school, right, for college, learn something really a little business maybe. Engineering anything. Yeah. And work every city in America has a good kitchen now for the most part. Work there for free or work there like everyone else does in college for a part-time job. That makes more sense to me than just putting all your eggs in one basket, thinking this culinary degree that is what at like 40 to $50,000 a year, a pop is going to like give you some sense of success. We got to vet it out a little more. I think you got to, you got to like first figure out if you hate it or not, which is going to take you a little time. Actually, I think it took me a few years. And so it's like that love hate thing. And, but you've got to vet it out and then, but work for free and then you don't have the debt. I look at your career and it's like, without a doubt, yes, you did go to cooking school, but you learned everything on your own anyway. And so much, I think, of your originality is because you did not have to learn it from anyone else. Yeah. And you had to figure it out on your own. And, and that is a very powerful carrot to dangle. You know, I realized later, or I realized now is that the only thing that I had to go by was really my imagination of what I thought the standards were. And so I'd say that's probably the biggest, that, that's probably the most important thing that, that, or standard that I held myself over to the years because I'd never been to France. I'd never been to Japan. I'd never been anywhere except China. And so I really didn't know what all those, you know, all those old tales of French kitchens and these amazing kitchens. I just thought that it was this, this, you know, thing that was unattainable, a, for unattainable you. quality that was incredible. Well, it was, I, I just, all I could imagine was this amazing quality that was, you know, like heaven. And so that's what I, you know, kind of set my sights on. And you got a job after the FCI or during the FCI. I was working at Mercer Kitchen. You got a job at Essex House, right? Weren't you at Essex House for a little bit? No, that was at uh, Vong. Vong. Vong, yeah. For oh, like, we both were at GG. Yeah. <laughs> Did you work uh, there? Yeah. At no, Mercer, I never worked yeah. at Vong, but like that was always like where all so many FCI kids were. Yeah, Vong. Yeah. When uh, Pierre was still the chef there, yeah, right? Yeah, Pierre. Um, Vong was ahead of its time too. What was it? Thai... It was, was it like, it was like a, it was like, you know, Jean, uh, Jean George's like version of like Thai cooking. Very popular yeah. in its day and yeah. is no longer with us, but it had a very successful run. And again, it's amazing to me when I remember how many people have worked for these like chefs. There's only like five chefs, it seems like in the nineties, early aughts that everyone worked for. And after Vaughn, where'd you go? Fuck, after Vaughn, I went back to Boston. And, um, I, you know, at that point I struggled with kind of, because it was the first time that I was out of martial arts. So when I went to cooking school, you know, I, it was, it was kind of, I threw myself into that also. I usually throw myself into things a hundred percent. And so, you know, it was always a struggle between martial arts and cooking. And I really started to love cooking. And so I went back and forth between, you know, should I work in a kitchen or should I just devote myself to martial arts? Um, and so I worked at a, a little place in Boston called Troquet, uh, Ambrosia, a couple little places there. And, and I would, I would work for a place for like six months and then I would quit and I would go back to martial arts. And then oh, you're the last, worst kind of fucking I, I was the worst. Me. I was the worst. You'd beat yourself up. If today. I could go back yeah. in time and see myself again, I would, I would not only fire me, but I would probably beat the shit out of me. <laughs> and so, and, and so I went back and forth between that struggle of martial arts and cooking. For, for a period of time. And then finally, I really didn't devote myself to cooking until I really came out here to, to San Francisco in 2003, 2004. And where'd you wind up? 
You were in Mountain View? Or, yeah, I got, yeah, I got a chef job. I can't right believe off the it. Bat. Crazy fucker gave me a chef job. Yeah, at, at I was I was the chef of a little restaurant called Shea TJ. It's been around for like 30 years. It's just like a little house in the middle of Mountain View. And uh, the owner just took a chance. How many at, seats? They had like 40 seats. It's still there? Yeah, still there. And still what there. was the first dish you made? Oh, fuck. I don't know. I want to know. Man, Come I blocked on. that out of my memory. No, no, no. Fuck you. I, all that stuff. I can't. Those no, poor no, people no, that came no, and ate at no, GTG no, when I was no. there at that I time. I want to know the imagine. fucking dish that I can't you were even, so proud of. You were like, yeah, man, that's going to fucking kill it. I know you thought There's that. There's so many. There's so many. Just come give me one. Give me a taste of, uh, of, of skeins in the mid-20s. Fuck, I can't remember. I can't even remember, man. <laughs> I love looking back at old dishes. It's like looking back at bad haircuts. I would have to look at an old menu. I can't even think of anything. What was the food? What were you making, though? I was trying to figure it out. It was, it was it was a young young dumb kid trying to figure out, you know, like how to cook. And it was it was it was a it was like a, vinaigrettes it was made big, with xanthan gum. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was I, you know back then I was I was super into the the kind of traditionalist mindset of like everything needs to be done. You know, you, you throw it on the grill, cook it in the pan. None of the stuff that was made popular through you know El Bali really was I into at that time. So if you had to choose a chef that at that point, so if anyone is a, like very few people, I feel like have uh, understanding or like nerding out on chefs, uh, particularly the lineage at this point in your life at Shea TJ, what age? 24. Who was, who were your culinary heroes? That was, that was the Ducasses of the world. It was It was, you know, that old guard traditional. There, there, were, there were a few guys from Japan. I really love, I've always, you know, kind of been split down the middle between France and Japan in terms of, well, at least back then. And what, why? Because like you'd never been there. Like what, what, what There's just a beauty. There's like this aesthetic. There's this beauty, this sensibility to the cooking and this simplicity. You know, it was always the people that had this like uh, really striking kind of simplicity and beauty to their cooking. And. For those that don't know Alain Ducasse, and guess what? There are a lot of people that are younger cooks now that have <laughs> no idea who he is, which is crazy to me. What was his sensibility? Or if you're just a general person that's listening and you're well, just it's, like, it's it. natural. It's natural food, right? It's natural cuisine. I think that's that's even what they 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 call it. And and it was just kind of a, 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 a I guess it's a lightened kind of interpretation of of French cooking, but he it was really it was really truly about the products and in earnest, not. Not like a lot of people say it was, you know, where can I really find the best product that exists? And, um, you know, can I remove, you know, can I remove some of the excess, maybe fats? You know, can I remove flowers out of a sauce? And can I create, you know, kind of a, it was like a lighter, but more depth of flavor. And not only did he have that, Ducasse basically hijacked the Michelin system, or at least was seen by the rest of the world because he had so many fucking stars. I think outside of the chef Mark Varad, he was the, one of the first or the first chef that had two, three Michelin star restaurants in, the, was in Monaco the and Plaza Athene in Paris. I yeah. think Mark Varad was the first. He was the first yeah. Another very, very, very famous chef that was iconoclast in, in French gastronomy. But Ducasse is super important because he married luxury and finesse and technique in a way that looked incredibly simple yeah to the point where his critics i remember chef six now was it chef six dominic Cerrone. Yeah, Cerrone yeah, would yeah, talk yeah, shit yeah. no maybe <laughs> i can't say that on his behalf because i love Dom, chef but there was a sense from the older school chef generation that were french that were talking shit 
Saron, I'm not putting that <laughs> in his mouth. He didn't say that, but there was certainly a palpable sense of shit talking about Ducasse from the older generation because they're like, that motherfucker's just making Italian food, glorified Italian food. Didn't you hear these like things that, that this is what people talked about? I never heard that about, before. Yeah. Especially when he opened up Essex House. Yeah. You mean jealousy? I think it was a little bit of jealousy. Yeah. And Essex House to me was, Ducasse gave America its best restaurant. And we said, get the fuck out of here. That's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. I still remember my meal from that place. It's amazing. Yeah. Yes. It, what got us lost was the, 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 the pompous nature of it all with the pens and the silver and everything. But I don't think to this day, any restaurants ever gotten the quality of ingredients yeah. uh, that they got. And you know what? It happened. And I think his loss paved the way for Keller to come back to New York at per se. But I mean, New York City kicked the shit out of Ducasse. And I don't think that was a fair shake. You know, we wanted him. He gave us exactly what New Yorker wanted and it didn't happen, which is funny to me. The reason I say that is here you are in Mountain View and you are dreaming up Ducasse creations at a time when his popularity in America was probably at an all-time low. Yeah. Why do you think New York didn't like Ducasse? They didn't have the culinary understanding of what the fuck they were eating. Yeah. I think. Yeah, that's what I would say. It was, I want to say too advanced. I don't think New Yorkers wanted to be shown how to eat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if Ducasse was an American, it's the greatest, greatest restaurant America's ever produced. Yeah. The irony is there were a lot of American cooks there and most of the product was from America. And I knew a couple of people that were working there and, you know, I would just hear stories and I was so intimidated. Of course, like Ducasse opened up, of course I wanted to work there, but it was at a level where I was like, oh my God, that's like, that's a God. Yeah. I'm so just a mere fucking mortal. There's no way I could ever get to that kitchen. And that's why I never even <laughs> thought about working there. Yeah, same. Right? Yeah. Of course I wanted yeah. to, but at that time, it's important for anyone that's following your career is like, oh, Ducasse became it. He made some amazing books and he was super important. But when you opening up Shea TJ, El Bouyi was it. Ferran Adria, Albert Adria, they had just published their first cookbooks and they were number one in the world when the top 50 started gaining some traction. So it's funny to me is at that point, you were like, no, I don't give a shit about this. I want the polar opposite. And your menu, again, must have reflected that. Well, it was a pale copy at that time. <laughs> but, but, but that was the idea. Was in Japan, Japan was really, I think Japan had looked up to more than anything back then. I think in, you know, it's the whole martial arts thing. It's like the beauty of like a little broth, some old dude in the mountains of Kyoto trying to make, uh, you know, the perfect liquid from seaweed. But again, you had never even been to Kyoto. And how are you no, dreaming stories, about this? No, it was books, stories. I mean, that's all you had back then. All you had back then was a little, you know, cookbook or something or something you would see, even if it wasn't a cookbook, you know, uh, martial arts books, you know, the, I don't know, it's just a dream. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Skagen. Cultural identity plays a big part of Skagen's Danish-inspired watches and jewelry. Skagen is named after a Danish coastal town and is inspired by the people who live there. The Danish lifestyle focuses on what's meaningful, being part of community, living purposefully, but also making time for good food, good music, and good company. No wonder Denmark is known as the happiest place on earth. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. I echo there quite a bit. Skagen connects the dots between culture and design with watches and jewelry that reflect the less is more concept. Skagen offers men 
men's and women's watches, jewelry, and even smart watches in a variety of styles. They create styles driven by their guiding principle, good design for better living. Scoggin products look right any time of day, anywhere in the world, now or 10 years from now. Because simplicity isn't just beautiful, it's versatile. Scoggin stays true to their heritage, and that makes every design something special. I have a Scoggin digital watch. I love it. I get compliments on it all the time. Visit Scoggin.com to get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for emails. That's Scoggin.com, S-K-A-G-E-N.com. The Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by 23andMe. As your loved ones get together this Thanksgiving, discover more about the genetic connections you share with 23andMe. Simply spit into the tube provided in your 23andMe kit, register your sample to your personal account, and receive online reports in a few weeks. You can discover where your DNA is from out of 150 plus regions worldwide and see genetic similarities and differences between you and your relatives. You can even learn about how much Neanderthal DNA you inherited and which traits your Neanderthal DNA is associated with, like height and back hair. And I did the 23andMe and my wife saw that I have Neanderthal DNA and uh, a few other surprises that I probably will talk about. It was super simple to do. I've been telling everyone to get their results because it's fascinating to see how things have evolved and where I'm from and my family's history. And I'm super thrilled with 23andMe. So I'm probably going to get it for Christmas presents for everyone I know. And now through Thanksgiving, 23andMe Ancestry Service Kits are only $49 per kit when you buy two or more kits. That's 50% off the regular kit price of $99 this holiday. Order your 23andMe Ancestry Service Kit at 23andMe.com slash Majordomo. That's the number 23andMe.com slash Majordomo. And now back to the show. I have used you as an example to so many of my cooks. And again, I don't like complimenting you to your face. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but uh, I think this is super important for anyone that is listening that is in the culinary arts or not. There is something beautiful that happens when you can't get the information you want that is sort of unattainable, right? You have to use your imagination to think about how it might taste, to wonder how these techniques were used to create it or how this ingredient even came about, whether through books, some kind of documentary, whatever, that information about Japan, particularly then, was so hard to get. France, so hard to get. You would talk to people and you would get like, you know, kernels of like information. But for the most part, and I taste this in your food to this day, you had to fucking construct what you believe Japanese food tasted like without ever tasting it before. And that to me, quite frankly, if I have to like psychoanalyze your, your food is besides martial arts, the second thing that is so fucking important to you was the fact that you did not have access to France or Japan. And your food has this crazy dreamlike imagination that I don't know if anyone could ever have because you're the only motherfucker that was like, I'm so fascinated by this. I'm going to read everything about it and I'm never going to taste it or I'm never going to actually go to the source. And there's something weird that happened that was beautiful, quite frankly, because that inability to get the information in your hands or in your mouth caused something in your brain to come up with something so fucking original. And that's what the world needs more of, quite frankly, because now everyone can see what everything's happening in the world without actually experiencing it. 
or trying to struggle to get it. And I think that's, quite frankly, the biggest compliment I can give you because when I think of your food, and here's the problem, we'll get to it, your food is very fucking expensive for for reasons we'll get into. It's inaccessible for people to understand. And if they don't understand, it might be seen as weird because they don't understand what the fuck you're trying to do. That's just my two cents. I'll shut the floor. Well, up. just so everybody knows, it's the same price as every other restaurant out there. That's why that's in that three-star three yeah. yeah, we'll get there. Uh, and that's the thing, man. I got mad respect for how you've done it because we need more original voices. And I think the food that you make, whatever it is, and I can't wait to check out Angler, it's incredibly unique. Well, I think I was just so consumed with trying to figure it out with that idea. You know, just that I was just so obsessed with... Um, whatever was in my imagination that it just led me to a place that probably would have been, I don't know. It was a really, in a lot of ways, I mean, I, 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 I can only, if I could count the money that I've wasted trying to get to that place or, or the mistakes I've made to try to get to that place, it's crazy. But I was just so obsessed with getting this version of quality. That's, I guess that's how it all happened, right? And that's when you became like starting all the, the the relationships with the product. Yeah. Right. And, and it morphed from that, from that imagination to finally, there was a point, there's a stage where you, you can, you know, things kind of come to life and you can taste the, rather than just imagine it, it becomes a little bit more of a taste reality. And so the taste balance starts to come to life a little bit. And so then, then, you know, you build a little confidence really when it really comes to life is when you learn about the product because really the product's everything. And so I think that that's and uh, how lucky you, you were you to be in mountain view, right. With all of this product around you. Well, the fact that I, the fact that I wound up in, in San Francisco Bay area is, is, was perfect because there's the, the products that are amazing. How many years at Shea TJ? I was there for two years, two years. And this is another thing that I think is crucial. And I love using you as example to younger cooks. You fucked up. You made every mistake you possibly could before it mattered, really, you know? Yeah. And well, even when it didn't matter, I still made mistakes after that. I mean, it's they're, they're, I just can't even count them. No, we're never born as this, like, oh, I have this vision. This is going to be perfect. Like, there is no one that has a crystal. Not that I know of. And it's not a cautionary tale, but when I look at all the chefs that I admire that have done something really meaningful, they've had a period of their life where they just went off the deep end and they did something where they weren't supposed to do and they were given an opportunity to fuck it all up. And I think that's where they go through some crucible to learn what their voice is. And I think that the Shea TJ moment was so fucking important. It, it, it wasn't crystallized yet in terms of what your food was going to be, but you got a lot of the, the, like the 10,000 hours out of your fucking way. Yeah. And then what happened next? Well, that, I, I feel like that was really this super experimental period where I was just trying to figure out even how to cook. I, I didn't know how to cook back then, right? So Did you that, know how to manage? No, fuck no. That was, I mean, I just figured that out a couple of years ago <laughs> or maybe yesterday. I don't know one of the two, but. It's uh, ironic so, that like no one tells you how to do that. I feel like that should be cooking school. It should but, be cooking school, yeah, right? Instead of, instead of cooking. But um yeah, so so Shay TJ was really this this just super experimental time of just trying to figure everything out, and and uh, you know going to the markets and really like going to farms and stuff like that and trying to uh, uh, learn about products. It was just it was just a laboratory, really. Uh, but then I got uh, Michael Mina, uh, who's a good friend of mine now. He offered me a job, and I knew zero about the business of restaurants at that point. 
So I went to work with him for a couple of years doing development and coming up with menus and stuff like that. And luckily I was, I was around just to see some of his business, you know, his, uh, learn about business and learns about the, you know, the, all the admin of restaurants. How long were um, you with Mina? That's when I found out what a food cost was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like a year and a half, I think. And, and you were just like floating around? Yeah, I was doing, I was, I was basically creating menus for him, you know, creating menus, coming up with recipes, uh, what did he helping see him in, train his chefs. What did he see in you? I fuck if I know. So you, you have all of what, three, what, three years of experience before this? Yeah. yeah, I think it was just the food. I think he just, I think he just wanted somebody to, uh, that he could rely on to, to make tasty food at that point. And for those that are not from the Bay Area or the Las Vegas area, Michael Mina, started his career from the CIA at a ripe young age of like 22 and opened up Aqua back in the day. And many, 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 many awesome chefs came out of that kitchen. And he wound up becoming one of the most prolific restaurateurs in America today. I, I don't know how many I think he's got like 40 restaurants now yeah. or something like that. And he just is a machine. Yeah. But Mina is one of the most organized restaurant groups. So that's funny that you needed that to learn... I really needed that at the time. Yeah, and he's a super smart businessman, and so I, I needed that that moment. Wow. Did you make the lobster pot pie? No, I refused. <laughs> it's, a, it's one of the signature dishes, and it it's is, brilliant yeah. because it's made a lot kidding, of money. You never asked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Mina has been a real role model for a lot of people, and I had no idea that you worked there. And then you're in San Francisco a year and a half later. You're like, what? Are you happy? Can you be a corporate person? No, I can't be. I was, I was, I was, I wasn't, I was, I was miserable in the sense that I just, I still had, no matter what, I still had this vision that I needed to get to. And so all of my time was spent really thinking about what I can do next. And, you know, we had a few different ideas, you know, at some point we looked at open up restaurants together. I had an idea for a restaurant that we wanted to open. We shopped it around. We looked at, you know, some spaces, never came together. And then, you know, after, I guess, I don't know, roughly two years or so, I just, I just knew that it was time for me to do what I wanted to do. And, and, um, I felt like I could cook well enough kind of at that point to at least a starting point to open a restaurant. Well, someone that's and, listening to this and they're like, wait a second, you have one of the greatest chefs out there today. And he's telling me that he didn't know how to cook. Can you elaborate what that actually means? So to me, the perfect cooking is is this kind of like uh, in a in a commercial setting, it's almost impossible. And so, y you know, my idea of of uh, perfect food is really like you go down to the river, you fish the fish out, you grill it, you eat it, right? And so, you know, how close can you get to that in a restaurant setting? How close can you get to you know going out and grabbing an elk out of the field, and then because there's a taste associated with all that stuff and and you know if you think about like even being by the river and smelling the river water the taste of a piece of meat or a fish or a leaf when it's plucked off the flower or off the plant it's a reference point right that all that all that stuff at that particular time happens to be the reference point for depth of flavor taste balance all that so so when you're saying cooking you're not talking about technique you're still trying to shape your vision of what food is going to be for you? Well, I, I think to, when, I look, when I look at technique, I think it's a vehicle to take, to, first you, you've got to find that, you know, product. And, and that's almost, I mean, it's really fucking hard now. And just to get that perfect product. Why is it so hard? 
it's our system. Our practices are, are you know, commercial, they're commodity, they're monoculture. It's, you know, there's entire counties devoted to one type of lettuce. And for good reason, we have to feed people. But when it comes to the quality of product, you know, it's a very different system. And so, so even small scale farms, a lot of times are, are still, you know, they have to produce a certain amount of yield to stay afloat, right? And just to, to you know, exist as a business. But that doesn't necessarily equal taste, right? Or the best flavor. So, so even getting that stuff in the door is, is, uh, is a real challenge. And I want you to talk about how you develop those relationships because I don't know of many people, you might be the only chef that is as dedicated to that as possible because a lot of people talk the big game about getting those perfect ingredients, but you certainly are one of the few people that was like, fuck it, I'm just going to do the whole vertical myself. I mean, that's step number one, right? So, I mean, you, you know, you're, you know you're, all, of that, all of that technique and everything that happens afterwards is really just a vehicle to, to kind of bring those ingredients to life if you get the right things. I mean, it doesn't work if you, you know, buy a gal app or from the corner store. It's not the same, but, but yeah, I mean, that's really like just, just, uh, it changes the way you cook, right? I mean, if you look at it like, like this, you've, you've got, you've got basically, you know, a moment in time for everything when it comes through the door. And let's just say, you know, you, let's just say you found the perfect product. Just when you get in the, to, to the door of your restaurant, you know, the clock's ticking already and it's not, it's not even just that you need to use it right away. That's not the point. The point is you've got to capture some sort of, you know, the purity of that product or the taste, the best taste of that product. Let's use an example. So, let, let's, let's use one well, let's piece. Use, let me let's use, use piece. Let me use it. Let me use a fish, right? I mean, it's a, it's a little more complex answer, you know, uh, answer. And it, like, a, like a, you say you a pea or a flower or an herb or something just picked out of the garden, it's pretty straightforward. There's an aroma, there's a fragrance, there's a texture that transforms, you know, after even just a couple hours of being picked. And, and it just continually degrades from there. So that's pretty straightforward. Like use it as quickly as possible. Make sure you keep the aroma and the fragrance, that kind of thing. But let's say you take a fish, right? You take a, you take a, a fish you just caught and you kill it the right way. You know, the kijime, for lack of a better term, it's kind of a modified kijime we use at the restaurant. So you're killing it. And he's saying ikijime is. Yeah, right. It is unequivocally the best way to butcher a fish before you eat it if you really want it to be the most delicious way and we'll talk about that another day or you can look at it on your own but if you're truly committed to making the most delicious fish possible that's the best and only way because the science backs you 100 percent yeah and so and so that so you kill it that way you know you, you you you've got a perfect product that particular point so then the clock starts ticking in terms of what you do with that product you know how do you capture the best taste in that product, you know, and, and as we all know, I think now that doesn't necessarily mean just that it's fresh, right? That it's just killed. There's, there's a lot of different directions you can go. You know, do you really want to, like, if it's like, I think you've had the turbo a couple of years back at Saison where it's just killed and you eat it and it's still crunchy. You can taste the texture, that kind of thing where it's used fresh, or you can take it down the road and find that little sweet spot where it's perfect. You know, it becomes, it, it starts to transform. There's a transformative process that happens. Literally. And, and the texture improves and, and the flavor improves. The flavor deepens. It goes, you know, just the taste balance will completely change. But then there's also, you know, let's just say you've got, so now you've got the product, you've processed it properly, or you've killed it properly, you've bled it, you've gotten to yourself, you decided when that sweet spot exists. Then you have to use it and process it and, and 
for me, just even butchering the fish to, to achieve some sort of taste sanitation is like the most overlooked thing in restaurants, I think. And, and it, it is overlooked number one too, because it's not that it's hard to do, but you're also talking about crazy amount of it's time consuming time and space yeah, and cost of keeping live product. in. It's really fucking hard. Well, and it's, I mean, at the end of the day, the labor kills you, right? I mean, you've got, you've got, you've got to devote, I mean, just the taste sanitation for that one particular fish, let's say. How do you wrap it when it comes in the door, right? You can apply this to shallots, onions, doesn't matter what it is. Where do you put it? Do you bury it in ice? Do you wrap it in green paper and put it in the fridge? Do you leave it out at room temperature? How do you store it? Which way, which direction, what goes on top of it? Every fish What's is it different. What's stored next to? You know, you're right. So there's all those, you know, there's all those questions. And then- once you get past that point, then there's the processing stage of actually butchering the fish. You know, do you store it with the scales on, the guts in, the guts out? All those things really affect the taste. And so when I say taste sanitation, this is kind of what I mean. Like, how do you achieve, like, the desired taste in the product? And then— And this is, you, this is where I feel your affinity for Japanese food comes in because this is what the great masters of Japan figured out 100, 100 years ago. And I, again, use this as a compliment because I went to Kyoto and I, I talked about it with Schlosser about going to Kikunoi and I spent time doing Ikijime and being shocked when you go in the morning with the fish butcher, they have the reservation sheet for the diner, the, the table, and they have the course that the fish is going to be used in. Is this the Ikijime room? Yeah. Or the Ikijime, Ikijime room. room. Yeah. And they brain spike it. They bleed it out. It's a more... It's actually a simple process, but more complicated to explain. We won't talk about it today. And I was blown away. And you can say what you want about the food, but the fucking precision about the optimal time to eat this fucking fish. The reservations here, by the time they get this course, they estimate that it'll be like at 8.30. Reservation 6 o'clock, this course will be at like 8.30. Well, you know what's interesting about that to me is like when you said what you can say what you want about the food, you know what I think of instantly is like, do you know about the food? Because I, I, I think that... Not you, but I just mean in general. Right. There's a, when you get to that level, when you get to that level of product and, and kind of, you know, detail about taste, like depth of flavor, balance, all that stuff, the food changes a lot, right? It's no longer, you know, what can I put on there? It's like, what can you get rid of? Like yeah. when there's literally nothing left on the plate, that's when it, it starts to become really good. At that point, it's so subtle. Like the differences are so, you know, it's so minuscule that it's hard to taste. It is hard to taste. And that's why a lot of people may not get it. But that entire process and the journey to do it is what makes that cuisine completely different than everything else. It is integral to the end, end product, quite frankly. And I was blown away at that and the labor and space that is needed. And Kikunoi is one of several restaurants, I'm sure, but that was the one that I saw that was the most impressed because the other restaurants that do it, but not to that level. I was blown away when the new Saison, again, which we'll get to without screwing up the timeline. And when I saw that you had the Diamond Turbo, which is basically a trash fish that you found with a, with a fisherman, and then you were doing Ikijime, and I'm like, hey, who taught you how to do this? You're like, oh, I taught myself. I was like, fuck you, Skeens. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, fuck you, man. Like, and, and I'm tasting this meal of, of the fish and how perfect it was and the texture. And that's another thing that people, I don't want to say everyone. I have to stop saying everyone. Many people don't understand is that 
certain kinds of fish, particularly flat, are really enjoyed in Asia because of the texture when they're freshly killed. But that might not be the what you want for sushi or for a piece of fish that's cooked or poached or whatever. And the fact that you understood that nuance, and I was like, wow, he's working at a whole nother fucking level. Immediately. I think that was the first time I ate. Was I, it the first time you ate? I think it was the first yeah. time. And you had the box and you made the sauce of the innards. I was like, fuck, man. I had to go to Japan to figure this shit out. And I still don't even implement it in my restaurants because we don't have the capacity to do it. And the goal is maybe one day. But like to be able to do that for everything, and we can get Ikijimi stuff, but to do it on your own, I was like, I was so fucking blown away. I couldn't get that out of my head for like a month. I was like, how the fuck did he do this? And I, you did it on your own. That's what I don't think many of our peers understand the level of difficulty to actually teach yourself that shit. And that's when I was like, fuck, Skeen's taught himself how to do all this shit. I was blown away. Maybe that's just really one stupidity you know, and the ability to like waste resources to accomplish that stuff. But also I feel like that's not, if you, if you just really kind of devote yourself to that, like holy, I mean, I'm, I'm no, I, it's I, not, a, and I, I feel like it's not, it's, it's not, not that, an unachievable it's not, thing. It's not right? unachievable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I was amazed at, and it was very significant for me, not that it's impossible or anything. That's not what I'm talking about. I was amazed that the the almost monastic fucking dedication for you to actually get to that level. You're like, no, nothing else is going to fucking suffice. Yes, I can get other fish that's Ikijime. Yes, I could get it, but I need to own the process from fucking catching the fish, storing the fish, and butchering the fish to serving the fish. It was full stop. I'm owning the entire cycle. I'm not going to let anyone else have any other accountability other than me and my team. And I was like, man, that was a significant moment for me to see at the level that you were trying to commit yourself to. No bullshit. I was like, I don't know if the rest of the world, particularly in America, understood that level of fucking dedication. Yeah, I just felt like it was the right thing to do at that time. You know, <laughs> of you're course. Like, you're like, you know, you're ordering all these boxes of shit from Japan. And I just, I felt like I just, I had to stop that. I'm like, look, I, I, I think it, it happened because there was this point where I, I was Googling, uh, native, you know, California fish species and there's a diamond turbo. It's like, why don't, why don't we fish that? Why don't we fish sea cucumber? There's sea cucumbers in the water. I went down the tidal pools and there's purple sea urchin everywhere. There's sea cucumbers, there's jellyfish. Like, why don't we use this shit? And you really closed off the loop in terms of the ingredients that we're going to use. And I don't know if you get enough credit for like literally just using ingredients. The only thing that is, I think probably imported to Saison now is the wine list. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a significant one at that. Probably one of the best out there. Uh, getting ahead of uh, myself and talking about this, but I'm just trying to integrate this into, you know, one of the rare times I get the opportunity or someone that is a fan of food in general, even if you haven't been to Saison uh, or tasted Josh's food at any other iteration, is the ideology and the philosophy and the commitment, right? In terms of how, how you got there. So, Going back, you leave Michael Mina, you open up the first iteration of Saison in the mission. In right? the mission, in in the back of, a, I guess, an alley. Did you ever go to that space? I did not. It was the back of some cafe building, an event space, crackheads. And uh, at the time- Literally. And, literally. And um, the place flooded every year because um, it was like two feet below the street surface. And uh, we wheeled we wheeled in our stuff and we wheeled our stuff out, put it in storage every night, and um, 
eventually just became too much. And so- How, how long did you operate that space? A couple it years? Two, it was 2000. We opened in 2009 and then, and then found our new space in 2012. But the original so space, years. you got two mission stars out of, yeah, right? Yeah, we got two stars there. Yeah. Which is crazy because it was such a, like, I was surprised, you know, it's like, I don't, you know, will, can you even get a star in this space? Right. I, I just wasn't sure at that time because, you know, you never know, is it for the food? Is it for everything? What were people saying about your food at the time? Cause it was still iterating, right? It, it was still evolving. Yeah, it was still evolving. Well, everything I mean, was cooked over fire. Everything was cooked over fire. I mean, there's a point where. You were probably one of, not the OG. Listen, people have been cooking over fire for a long fucking time, but I think you were one of the first people in America just, to bring it to the forefront, right? Yeah, well, just to, to change, yeah, to try to do everything in, in a restaurant setting in fire in, in a different way. Like, a, you know, how can you, you know, kind of do it rather than just kind of the standard um, grilling, let's say, flames, heat from flames? You know, how do you really change that process? Heat. It was, yeah. um, how do you, how do you harvest, you know, how do you utilize the entire, you know, every zone of the fireplace, the heat, the smoke, the taste, the flames, all that stuff. Michelin stars too. Oh yeah. First year, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think the day after it flooded. What was your, but, what, what went through your head when you got the call from, was it, uh, Jean-Luc Noray yeah. at the time. Jean-Luc gives you call. Yeah. Were you expecting anything? I didn't, I had no idea. I, I just didn't know what to expect. I knew. No, I wasn't. So I when John Luc Duray yeah. calls you and says, "Congratulations, we at the Michelin Guide just wanted to congratulate you for two Michelin stars right off the bat." Well, let's just go. Why don't we back up to when he called the first time for one? <laughs> and the you know honestly, the first thing in my I don't think I ever told anybody this, but the first thing in my head was, "Wow, you're a fucking failure. You fa you failed. You got one star." <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I didn't say that. But that was literally the first thought in my head. And I think he could hear the like depression in my voice at that time. <laughs> I, you know what's crazy too? I mean, I was very happy when we got two, two, but that was still the same thing. I was like, fuck, I got a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, we don't even have three. And I, I've now come to the realization like, I think I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm good. Like, we got two stars right off the bat. It was the fucking worst day of my life. Why is that? I was doing a dinner for Obama, like a fundraiser. And I, I talked about it on the moth a while back and I got the call and I, I went comatose. I don't remember anything that fucking happened. I went to a, like another room in the dark and I just sat there by myself contemplating fucking the meaning of life as to why this would happen. Because you were happier? Because I was so shocked and unhappy simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, I know. The I was feeling. so pissed. I was so pissed because I was like, give me one star first. Like, and plus we were like, Original Co was a piece of shit. Yeah. And I was like, no, like, no, don't do this. Like, no, don't, don't. I remember not being able to do anything for, for the rest of the night. And I was so embarrassed. There was a sense of embarrassment. Why? Because I was like, how the fuck did we get two Michelin stars? Oh, I got you. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I yeah. was like, fuck. Yeah. I wasn't even yeah. thinking about three, but then later I was like, oh my God, now we have to do the work to get three stars. Like, and all the stories you hear about chefs with two stars getting three stars really fucked me up. Well, you were way smarter than I was at the time because I was like, two stars, fuck, we got to get three. <laughs> no, and <laughs> I knew that, but I, I really weighed the consequence of what that might be because I had studied other chefs, right? Like, I always was infatuated with chefs that had two stars that were like, fuck it, let's go for three. And I had taught, I've spoken to many of these chefs and the downside of getting three. Once they get three, Unequivocally, I haven't met anyone that's like, yeah, that was what I wanted. 
everyone was like, ah, fuck. <laughs> they're stoked, but simultaneously they're like, fuck. You know what's crazy is I, we got three stars in 2014. I think it was that, yeah, that fall, I had already made the decision in the back of my mind that I was leaving and going to the woods. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had my bags packed more or less. I was ready to just get a little property out in the woods and do what I really wanted to do at that time. Because that was, that was in the midst of all of this, like, got to have the perfect product. Got to have the perfect thing. You know, I, I, had, I hadn't gotten those three stars. And so I just, I had this burning desire, right? To, to do things the, the way I want to do them. And, and I was going to go. And then I got that phone call and they and they, I got three stars. I was like, fuck, I can't leave now. I've got this responsibility to, to my staff, to, you the know, tradition to of the, through, the tradition, to all this stuff. And so ever since then, though, I've been thinking about the woods. <laughs> we had this talk too, because I, I'm lucky enough to talk to many people that have achieved three stars. And cause I'm always observing. I remember talking to you about it and there was a sense of not dread. It was like the fun part was getting there. Yeah. Right. Well, no one I, ever talks to you again about life after three stars. They only talk about it as like, oh, they got uh, a star removed. That's the only other time people talk about it. And then it's like, fuck, my existence is wrapped up in getting this Michelin star. My existence and, and like validation is in the star system. And I am torn. Am I critical of all these awards and shit? Yes. But also it's a sense of like being able to join this club that is like beautiful simultaneously if you really care about such things. And I am torn as to the importance of it because I look at the lives that it's sort of ruined <laughs> too. It's fucking hard to justify. It's really fucking hard, especially when you go to France and you talk to these fucking chefs. It is an all day lookout, DEFCOM 5 for what happens if we're not good enough to get three stars? I don't want to fucking experience that, man. There's always that that feeling in the back of your mind for me, but I never worried about that. I felt like that was the wrong way to go. I felt like you know it's all. It's I'm not saying it's not there, but you know, like the the concern and the worry has always been there. But but if that's the focus, man, that's the wrong fucking thing to think about. I you, know, you know, like you got to devote yourself to the quality of it not to uh, again all, all of this i get yeah. this but at the end of the day too it's like it's omnipresent it's everywhere yeah and that's like the the part of this that i don't enjoy and i don't enjoy seeing my friends go through fucking hell and back we definitely feel trapped at a certain point right yeah there, that's there's, it. there's a tra there's trappings to it where you're like you know you for you know i'm first of all i'm extremely grateful for what's happened but i think that you do get you get trapped in this world of even in your own mind, like what, is it good enough? You definitely, you know, these thoughts definitely go through your mind. Is this good enough? Is this the right direction? Is Michelin going to like this? You know, is this the right way to cook? And I don't think I came out of that cycle until just a couple of years ago where I, I it was I, all I was consuming. A, it was all consuming. I mean, it still is, but in a different way now, in a different way, it's more peaceful. Cause it's like, this is what I know is the right thing to do, you know, ethically, uh, quality wise, all that stuff. So the, this is the right direction. But up until that point, you know, it's, it's a, it's a little bit of a nightmare just all the way around though. It's not because of Michelin. It's because you're trapped in the system of all, all of the review systems of, 
is this going to be good for someone else? And maybe that someone else might not even know a smidge of what this product even is. Right. And it's, you know, again, controversial. I'm not criticizing in that sense. I'm criticizing it from the perspective of chef. And that's always where I'm going to be an advocate for is that moment. And I see it all again with the top 50 guide and all this shit. And it's something that I'm wrestling with because it's something I ask myself. It's like, are you cooking for yourself and your narcissism or are you trying to feed someone? And I currently have the belief that you have almost anything you make if you're in a non-home kitchen is narcissistic endeavor. <laughs> it just is at some vein, but there are some good things that can come out of it. And like most things like I, that, I think that for me, that this paradox, I think you have to do both. Like, and the best way to cook is when you're trying to cook for yourself and simultaneously feed someone else. And with all of these pressures that you're talking about that I've go through, I think it's really hard to keep that in mind. And I have yet to meet a chef that doesn't think about this shit. And I don't know how, if it's fucking healthy for us, quite frankly. You know what I mean? You don't need the validation. You're fucking incredibly talented. But every time, when's the mission guy come up in, in, uh, in San Fran? October. You know the in fucking October. date. Yeah, 21st. The day before, what's going through your head? Fuck, we're going to lose it all. I mean, that's <laughs> in some form or another, it's like, uh, you know, you try, you try to avoid it, but, it, but at some point... You're gonna. You, not, you don't want to think about it. You're gonna think about that. Year, it's, it's always, and a that's concern. the kind of fucking ownership they have yeah. over us. That like, dude, I'm not comfortable with. Yeah. And here's the thing: if we got three mission stars this year, I'm gonna be like, "Fuck yeah, dude! This is fucking yeah, amazing!" Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. I'm like, "Oh no." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird thing that I, I don't know how to express to people. And when I have to hear from people what the Michelin Guide is from the movie Burnt, I go fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like that film? <laughs> I thought you were the culinary consultant, bro. <laughs> so how did you find people after you got two stars at the old Saison, right? Then you moved. Did you get two stars at the new Saison or the old? The old, old one. one. Yeah, old one. Yeah. And that's when you were like, fuck it. For us to get the third one, we got to we go. Yeah, we go. got it. It's not going to happen in that space. Where did you come up with the, the plan? And how did you raise money? And all these things that matter. Like, what happened? I mean, I, I, same as any other restaurant, it's just, you know, here, here's, here's the, you know, here's the financial plan, which I failed at. And here's, <laughs> here's the, and here's, here's the, you know, here's the plan. And uh, I was never really, you, you, I, I was super lucky to be, I think, I think the biggest part is we're super lucky to be where I am in the Bay area where there's people that are like, you know, willing to take the risk. And a lot of my original investors are really longtime customers of Saison and they just, it was so easy. I don't, you know, really wasn't that hard to get that initial thing because they're incredible guests and, and friends and, and they took a risk on us. And how did you learn to formulate a lot of these like partnerships and stuff? Because the only reason I bring this up is this is something that continues to pop up to me time and time again with younger chefs or people that are even our friends that are trying to like grow or get money. I think it's a pitfall for many people. Like, how do you, how do you partner up with someone that you can trust? The one thing that I, it's going to sound not terrible, but I don't know how else to describe it. When you have to partner up with someone that is, is dependent on your financial success as a restaurant investment to make their own living, that's not a good investment. That's not a partner I think you should it's, go for. It's not the right partner. It's hard to find these fucking individuals that are so high net worth individuals that they don't really, it doesn't hurt them. 
I don't know how to like tell that to people, right? At the same time, like I've had to sacrifice everything. I've had to take investors where if I failed, it hurts them materially. So it's really bad advice. I'm not telling them not to do it, but it's very clear to me that if I was a super rich person in San Francisco and I frequented your restaurant and then I hear that you're trying to open up a bigger, better Saison, I'm like, yeah, dude, here. I, 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 the proof is in the pudding, man, as they say, like, I know what you're going to go for. And I know the commitment you're after. That's a story that still needs to be explained, not just for yourself, for everyone, because it's the part of the business that is still in the dark ages as to how it all happens. Cause no one knows what the fuck to do in my opinion. Right. I mean, if someone was half as talented as you, I would still say that's pretty fucking talented and they want to open up their own restaurant. They should, but I don't know how to protect our peer group from getting fucking swindled simultaneously. Depends on the partner. I mean, I've, it's all about the partner, right? It's, it really is. You got to pick the right partners. You got to have people you know are really going to support you in what you're doing, right? You're going to roll up their sleeves and get in there and get dirty with you if they need to. And they're going to let you make mistakes. Yeah. They, I mean, I think it comes along with, like, it should come along with the understanding that you're going to make mistakes. Like, you've got to allocate some sort of resources like 10 or 20 percent that you're gonna fuck that up it's gonna happen it's bound to happen there's gonna be things that you project that aren't gonna be real there's gonna be you know all of that contingency and i think you need a good you know 20 percent to cover all that stuff let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. You know what's not smart? Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. But you know what is smart? ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't wait for candidates to find you. ZipRecruiter finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. No more sorting through the wrong resumes. No more waiting for the right candidates to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from the hiring sites of Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now, back to the show. So, you secure the investors and you build Saison in a way that was like very different. Open kitchen, but like a home. And you got three stars. And I remember my first meal there. I ate with Corey Lee and uh, Chris Yang. And I was like, fuck. This is so fucking over-the-top delicious. And I, I remember saying, I was like, man, I think this is one of the best experiences I've ever had because you merge so many things that are near and dear to me, France and Japan, in a way that I had never fucking experienced before, in a way where beverage service really was perfect, right? The wine list is insane. and Everything was awesome to the point of you have Toto toilets, right? And I was like, I go back to Ying. I was like, dude, the toilet paper is like the nice toilet paper. Too. Yeah, you gotta get Charmin, man. <laughs> And like, I, I also saw at that time, you had the building next door at the time and I was blown. I remember going back to Co and I was like, Sean, I was like, fuck man, like 
we don't have a fucking warehouse full of fucking dishes and shit like that. Like, how the fuck? Well, I'm I'm just gonna assume that it's safe to say that you're way smarter. You had more business discipline than me at the time. Every dime we made, I put it back into the business. Every every cent I made, I bought a plate. I bought a new piece of equipment. I bought a better product. I mean, it was amazing. And you even had a fucking dojo. Yeah, that was super important, man. I would make sure I take it out in the bag and not anybody else. And there was one night that I don't, you said, what happened with the samurai sword? Oh, well, it was definitely one of you three that cut open my kicking bag. <laughs> Wasn't me. I don't know, man. All I know is you guys were super drunk. We were very drunk. I was and, very hungover the next day. My kicking bag, my precious kicking bag was cut, cut wide open the next morning. What are you doing giving us fucking samurai swords <laughs> to begin with? <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember anything myself. <laughs> anyway. That was the first time I had your food and you were the topic of much conversation by many people that I admire and respect. And it was a kind of cuisine that I had not experienced, right? And it was weirdly bridging two countries and to make it all with Bay Area ingredients was amazing to me. And Saison immediately became one of my favorite dining places I've ever been to and to talk to you about a lot of the trials and tribulations that you went through. And I'll never forget when I called you for the three stars, you were like, fuck, you know what I mean? Like you weren't fuck, but I understood what you're saying. Like it was the journey that made it so amazing. Yeah. And now it was a responsibility, not something you could pursue, but something you had to be a custodian of. Right. And what happens then? I mean, I think a lot of things shift like you, you, you are, you have to, you have to keep these stars for, it's not even for yourself at that point, right? It's for, I mean, it is for yourself, but also for your whole, you gotta, you've got a team of people you've got to take care of now. You've got, you can't let them down. You can't let anybody else down. If you lose a star, you're just might as well just quit. <laughs> just go do something else. And so, so there's this, all this, uh, I guess, underlying kind of anxiety that comes with it in terms of, you know, you have to not take there's certain I guess there's certain chances that you can't take anymore necessarily right I feel like we still did but but at say on anyway but you've got to protect you know it's it's just like Marco said a long time ago it's not you know it's defending game at that point right and that's you know, when he was like fuck it I'm done yeah. and especially when he said I know more about gastronomy than the yeah the, the 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 critics or the judges that are coming in and I think that's true and I don't know if anyone knows your ingredients better than you and how frustrating it is for you to experience this when people are like, this doesn't taste right. You're like, no, this is exactly how it should be. There's just fish on the plate, man. <laughs> this fish is chewy. What the fuck? That kind of shit. <laughs> fuck, man. I just, you know, but what do you do? You can't, you can't, you, you, you'll never say anything. It's just, it's just, I think that's just a, a part of, it's like reading negative comments on Instagram. Just don't do it. Just stay away from it. Just let it be part of the process. Like that's that's literally like those those uh you know the the you know whether they're negative reviews or whatever. As long as you're as long as you're you know honest with yourself, I think, or, or down to earth enough in terms of asking yourself the right questions. Like, is this really good or not? And I know that I, I ask myself like when you bite into it, like, is this really? If if you know Mr. Ducasse came and ate the chicken. Is this really the best chicken that I've ever tasted in my life? Would he agree? That kind of stuff. So as long as you're doing that, then, you know, you just got to let the noise pass by. There's a lot of but noise. But it's real frustrating. There's a lot of fucking noise. Because Saison is not a restaurant that fits a mold 
that a lot of people I think are familiar with, at least from a three mission star dining level, because you do have a, a group of diners that, uh, I'm, <laughs> that can be great, but also incredibly difficult to serve the, the jet setting. I eat everywhere in the world diner that are great, but also a bane of people's existence. Yeah. You know, most of them are really good. You know, I feel like we've been lucky in the sense that I think, I feel like it almost acts as a filter. Cezanne is almost a filter. Like it's a, uh, there's a, it's interesting because I, I remember Ruth Reichel came in and ate one time and she, she said, you know, I really didn't know what to expect because half of what I read was great. Half of what I read was terrible. And I just had no idea when I came <laughs> what it was going to be. And so, you know, she said, she's pleasantly surprised for that reason. But I don't know. It's interesting to me. It's like it's a, you, you devote all your time to trying to do when you really, truly like devote 100% of your time to trying to and resources to trying to get the perfect product to make things perfect for a guest to come in and eat the perfect thing. And like this really high quality, it, it even gets into, you know, ethical practices where, look, man, I want to make sure that you get the very best thing that exists within this price point. You have your own. So let's go into that. This is why I'm not justifying this, but I'm simply saying like it's rational as to why Saison is at a level of restaurant that is expensive to food, right? It's it's going out to dinner, but it's an experience because I think it's very rare that you are going to sit down and you better understand that every fucking thing, every fucking thing has been curated to the point where it is of Josh's and the team's belief that it's the best possible moment best possible product possible. And Saison in so many ways is like, uh, you're martial arts, man, <laughs> right? It's constantly getting better and better and better. It's very similar to the shokunin aesthetic of Japanese uh, craftsmanship of like constant improvement. Well, if we look at it in terms of like experience design, you know, you've got, you've got like a, not even just, I, I try to take a step outside of myself in terms of like, what, what is the, you know, what, what's the guest experience throughout the, throughout, right? Like when you come in, you know, from, from initial contact to the time somebody leaves and, and you, you know, kind of walk them out the door, what, what happens? Not, not only just the hospitality, but also the physical things that you come in contact with or the tables you touch, is the table smooth? You know, is the silverware balanced when you hold it in your hand or does it actually cut well? You know, is that on the right plate with the right utensils to really eat it with the least friction, you know, as a guest? What is the mouthfeel actually? Not, not, not what do I think it is, but what is it really in reality? So you so can kind of empty your cup a little bit and ask those questions. And that's what I again find fascinating because I think there's a misperception that a lot of great chefs are only thinking about their feelings about how the food should be. When in reality, I believe that one of the most hidden things that is not discussed a lot about, you know, great cooking at a restaurant is that usually the person that, not the person, even the team has an incredible high level of empathy because you're constantly thinking, how is it going to be perceived by someone else? And it's shocking, right? Like you just talked about silverware and it is very clear that you've thought about every possible way that someone might feel or experience it. I think that's the whole idea of hospitality, right? I mean, I, I don't, I don't think there's any chef that is really takes it seriously that hasn't thought through that process, probably. But we don't. I want to say we, but that's not something that ever gets spoken about. Yeah. Right. Like, oh, we're just fucking hot-tempered assholes, which is right. obviously true yeah, for a lot yeah. of people. Maybe for you and I. <laughs> but uh, 
you know, like if you haven't gotten like Saison's not cheap, but I think it's one of those things that's definitely worth the price of admission. We know it's crazy too. When I, when I used to hear the price er, earlier on, when I used to hear the price thing is, I mean, my food cost at that point, not because of waste, you know, it was like, I, I controlled everything, but it, there was a point where it was like 48%. <laughs> I was like, well, this is what I have to so, do. So if you don't know, that so is my burn rate. So, yeah. so fucking bad. <laughs> so fucking bad. So if you think that on an average restaurant, you want to get your labor cost around like 30%. 30 too, and your food cost around like 30% and you have all the sort of given costs. It's not a good balance sheet. No. And, and, so and I'm that, sure 48% wasn't the highest it's ever been. I don't think so. I think it was like 57 <laughs> You just gave us but the lower number. That's what, <laughs> but that's what, you know, at that particular time, that was what it, I was looking at this, you know, the money that I spent on these, just getting this perfect stuff in the door and forget the cooking, just like what, what it was to give people the, the something that I felt was honest. Right. So like, and, and, to get people that honesty, you have your own fishing boat, right? Yeah. <laughs> and a group of fishermen. That, <laughs> that gets live, live fish for you in the Bay Area. Yeah. And we and got storage, so, storing it live. Yeah. So, so yeah. So now, especially at Angler too, we, I basically took all those things that were, you know, uh, physically confined by the space and made them a little bigger, the, the fireplace, the live tanks, all that stuff. But yeah, every, almost everything we get is alive. Only when it doesn't make sense, like a big tuna, you're not going to bring a giant tuna in alive. but, um, but everything else. And well, you're, you're, like, you're cutting the customer short on that, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You're quitting on the customer. Yeah. And not getting yeah. the, the tuna life. Come on, man. Work well, harder. Well, you know, it's crazy because like you. <laughs> Just for the record, it would be impossible. So. <laughs> and would it make it more delicious because you want it aged and all that other shit. But we don't have to go in there. I'm just giving you shit. There, there was there was a period where it was like, uh, I think the menu was like 298 or something like that. And I, I originally thought that the idea was, was um, well, let me just be honest up front and say, okay, look, this is the cost of everything. There's no supplements. There's no anything. That was when it was like 40, 50%, you know, food costs. And then what is it now? And the price? Yeah. It's, I think it's 300 bucks now. It's still 300 bucks. I think like people are going to Hamilton for like a thousand bucks. Well, I mean, you know, most, most other, I think all other um, three missions are around the same price price, or a little more. Yeah. But at that time, um, you know, that was just, there was just this misunderstanding about what things cost. And this is where I think it didn't serve you well because you refused to talk to anyone. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, I, like I said, I thought that if I just... When the media asked, like, we love your restaurant, we'd love to know more. And uh, we'd love if you returned our phone calls or emails. Yeah. Or would even talk to us when we were in the restaurant. <laughs> or maybe not call us names. <laughs> I was the worst at it. I, I just didn't... I, I think I was very frustrated. But how could I, you I've when been, you're so, you're focused on fucking getting the best. You don't have the bandwidth to worry about anything. Well, I feel like if I had another another 10 hours in the day, I still wouldn't have enough time at that particular point to really, you know, get everything done. So you have your own fishing boat, you have your own farm, you have your own forager, you have your own cows. We've got, um, been working with uh, a bunch of ranchers over the years to do what's basically what I just call wild ranching for lack of a better term. And so it's like properties, it'll be 5,000 acres plus. Here, you know, can you, you know, go release this herd of antelope on your um, property? Livestock antelope, obviously not wild ones. 
and let them run wild. You know, you could wrap a system around it, you know, give them a little sanctuary where no human interaction happens. Just manage the land and then the animals will basically become almost wild. So there's that for the meat. Yeah, I'm really trying to just I mean, the dairy, do everything. It's amazing. It's really sort of <laughs> remarkable. The only other restaurant that I've experienced that's not from Asia, because there are places in Asia that are very, that, that that they've been cooking this way for for a long time without the sort of well, this is the way know, everybody used to cook. Yeah, just for the record, yeah. <laughs> is I I spent time at Favakin. Have you been there yet? No. It is fucking crazy what they do up there. Number yeah. one, it yeah. is insane. Everything's from the land. Everything represents Scandinavian culture in a way that is just sort of remarkable. It's a very difficult way of cooking. It's a very labor intensive way to express your food. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that Magnus, I'm glad that there's a handful of people out there that do it because I sure as hell don't have the discipline to do it. It's fucking just for, it's for real fucking bona fide crazy motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah. I wonder sometimes, <laughs> like, is it just fucking stupidity or, or, or is it, you know, is it this crazy, you know, devotion to something that at the end of the day, nobody really gives a shit about, even though they, I, I know that some people do. It's been a question. In my mind at one point or another. <laughs> so just so you know, like Saison is, I'm not just blowing smoke up his ass because I think it is a genuine, original American restaurant. And that's why I say it's an American restaurant doing something unique and original and check it out, right? Like I think for all younger cooks, they should go check out Saison. What is most fascinating is most recently you've instituted, installed one of the greatest chefs Ever? Yeah. Ever. Yeah. It's a safe assumption. Ever. Yeah. Laurent Gras. Yeah. And what is his role now at? He's a chef at Saison. So I had, I, I knew that I had to take a step back. And and really I, I have a lot. It was years ago. It's been a couple of years since I've really taken a step back from Saison. And just not being day to day in the kitchen. I think it's been a good three years. And, uh, or well, four years. There was really a lot of growing point. period too with the past three years, right? Like learning how to manage better. A lot of growth. A lot of growth. Just business discipline, managing better, um, you know, building opportunity for my team, all that stuff. It's just been, it's basically been in a planning phase. And, and remember when I told you about going to the woods? Yeah. Well, I haven't stopped thinking about that. Well, I know that's all you talk about. That's literally. pretty much all. Yeah, it's I won't get into some of the details, but I know how insane some of these plans are. Well, I've talked about Skane's Ranch before. It's like, it's it's out there. It's out there in the open. It's not, it exists. There's a website, skanesranch.com. And it's, it's. I won't go, you don't have to go in the plan because if and when it does happen, it's the most insane plan I've ever heard yeah. for a restaurant. And yeah. I can't wait to visit. As one table also. <laughs> That's the best part. <laughs> it's fucking crazy. Um, but going back to Laurent, he's someone that I cherish because I think he's, He's he's the man. He's awesome. He's incredible. I love the guy. He's just he's a machine. He's he's uh, uh, just you know that true you know craftsman shokunin in every sense. He knows fucking everything. Yeah, literally, he knows how to cook modern and classic. I think he's one of the greatest chefs ever, ever, ever. I would, and, yeah. And I'd also add so this because I'm a huge student of his, and I'm so glad that he's a friend of mine and. You know, when we did the pop-up, we did a couple days at Co. a few years back. I think that was the first one he had done after he left uh, H2O. I was blown away at how fucking methodical and organized he was. Yeah. It was a humbling moment because— Well, he's already thought through everything. 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 And so it, it's, really, it's really amazing, you know, in the sense that 
some people are willing to sacrifice certain things or not certain things in order for a specific outcome. And so the, you know, the methods he used to really achieve whatever the hell it is he wants to do is really interesting to watch. So, I mean, it was like a week's worth of mise en place. We were prepping out before we even got there. And he wanted to observe every fucking cook that we had. And he gave every cook their own binder. <laughs> Swear to God. Yeah. Every cook their own binder with their mise en place that they were responsible for that week. And per day, he had it all organized to the point of, this is the time frame that I expect you to finish each of these projects throughout the day. Color-coded. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. It's the most yeah. organized shit. The definition of dream mise en place organization. I had no idea. I had never even known that that was possible. And it was illuminating to see how he thought about food and he cooked it. And what I was most blown away with was how he's able to draw upon certain techniques and ingredients to match the kind of skill that the cook can execute. Yeah. That's the craziest right. shit, man. Well, he has so much. You think about all of that experience from all those restaurants and Ducasse and everybody else, plus along with his personality and that kind of almost robotic you know, understanding of, of he's like a supercomputer. He knows yeah, how to yeah, fucking based. draw different yeah. techniques for the situation. It's yeah. fucking wild. Yeah. So I was blown away, and I've been following his career since he was at the fifth floor, and before that, when he was at Peacock Alley. Remember, he ran Peacock Alley in New yeah. York at the yeah. at the New York was it New York Palace? It was when he first came here. I think in ninety seven, yeah. and that was ahead of the game. Yeah. Uh, everyone wanted to work there. And then he left, and then he was at the fifth floor, and I would collect stories from uh, one of his CDC's junior that was good friends with Wiley about what he would do there. He would send everyone home, clean up all their stations, finish all the tables because he had to beat over time, and like do it all himself, wash everything down, and go to the gym and work out for like three hours, sleep for two hours, and go back, be the first one at the restaurant before anyone else. He's a fucking Terminator. Yeah. And yeah. It's, a, it's frightening. And he's probably the best, one of the most best shaped people ever. I marvel at the fucking time that he has to dedicate to everything. And before I get there, I want to just say this. He has, I don't think any chef is responsible for four, three Michelin star restaurants. He was at Guy Savoie. And I think a lot of the dishes, and if you talk to younger cooks or older cooks, I should say, a lot of the... I'm not trying to talk shit about Guy Savoy. No, I'm not. But he doesn't get credit for being responsible for a lot of the fucking famous dishes, according to people that I've heard. Not debating that. But he was part of the team that got three stars. He got three stars at Plaza Athene. And a lot of the things that he instituted for Ducasse are still used because I used to talk to Claude Bossi, who got fired from Ducasse. But he said a lot of the recipes were still Laurent <laughs> Gras from 10 years earlier in terms of the system of how it was created. He was at Monaco. Yeah. And at Louis Kahn's. H2O. Yeah. So yeah. four different times an individual has been really instrumental at getting three mission stars, the latest at H2O in Chicago where he left. And he has been this chef that has constantly left because things were not to his fucking standard. Right. Even if it was the, he was a chef of a place. And I actually think that this is the first time where he's going to probably stay for a long time because I don't know of any other two chefs that have this obscene fucking level of perfection. And you guys speak each other's fucking weird language. 
We do. It's a love story. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, right? Like, yeah. He's, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, uh, I'm super excited that he's there. I don't, and I, you know, the best part is I get to go eat now. He knows fucking everything. Yeah. I'm so, when I read that, I was like, motherfucker. <laughs> if you were going to have one person help you out, he's the only person. I try, you know, it's, I tried to find somebody for so long to be able to take over and just so I could go to the woods actually. And, um, perfect time. I mean, it was serendipitous. He was, he just, he wanted to cook again. And I'm just saying like, I have so much fucking respect for that guy. I put him on the, the very, very few people list of like the fucking most respect for him. Right. It's unbelievable. So if you don't know anything about him, you should, especially if you're a young cook, you fucking should. You know, what's crazy is like one of the, I, I remember, I think there was roughly like half the kitchen staff didn't know who he was. It's like, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? <laughs> How would they know? Right? Well, I guess, I guess, I guess that's part. I feel like that's, uh, shouldn't you? Yeah, shouldn't you should you be studious. You should, you should you know, be studious. Of, of, you should obviously, but I'm no longer holding anyone accountable for not knowing certain things. Yeah. Right. The fact that I cannot articulate how crazy it is to me that you have Laurent Gras at the kitchen. (laughs) It is so mind bendingly (laughs) fucking crazy. It's so crazy. Well, you just got to come eat. (laughs) I can't (laughs) wait. So Saison allows you with Laurent there to focus on other projects. And I think you're here not just because you want to talk shop. You're here to talk about your new restaurant, Angler. Yeah. Well, Angler, I was actually just here to talk shop, but, but uh, <laughs> Angler, Angler's, uh, yeah, Angler's new seafood restaurant. And so it's, it's right on the, the Embarcadero waterfront in San Francisco. And uh, across the street, there is a pier. And on that pier, the fishermen pull up with live tanks and we unload live fish from the pier to the, to the restaurant's live tanks. So it's basically a seafood restaurant. Um, it's all sea life focused and it's really just about, it's got a giant fireplace and it's really just about that perfect, delicious, straight out of the ocean, sea life on the grill. You kill it, you grill it. That's it. That's about it, man. I, I Bo- did. Boring. <laughs> boring. <laughs> is that really boring though? Is that, is that, no, is I was that, choking. I that, was fucking choking because to me, it's the restaurant that I want to eat at. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that, that's why it was built. It was yeah. really just like a simple place. Just, but, but here's the fucking thing you're saying, Oh, it's just fucking fish and it's on fire. Like I have no doubt that is not the case. whatsoever. fucking ever. It, it is. And it isn't right. Yeah. It's hard to, cause it's so hard to explain. Like, how do you, how do you explain all that and not sound like a dickhead? If there's you know, not a California it. role, thing. then it's a joke. I got avocado on the menu, man. Yeah. Yeah. I want, I want like, Something that's a a a, a maki roll. I got Nashville hot rabbit. I got all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Can you just tell everyone you're basically just a redneck? I really am. Underneath it all, <laughs> Underneath I mean, it's it like all. I feel. You know, what's interesting you can't take is the there's Jacksonville like Florida out of you, man. There's this really interesting. It's not a redneck. Redneck is like those dudes you don't want to be around. You don't want to be around those guys. But but there is this deep, you know, country in me for sure, where it's like, you know, I want, there's nothing more satisfying than being in the woods, but it's also equally split down the middle with the big city. I don't know what it is. It's, it's, it's literally split right down the middle. I wouldn't be able to do one without the other. And like, what's next, right? You've always have all these ideas, right? Are you, what happens? 
Well, this is so like, so like Dacasa. You want to be like Dacasa and have hundreds of restaurants? No, I don't think you can do that anymore. And I think that people are way smarter than that now. And just you wait, motherfucker. Been, I'll show you. It's been, <laughs> <laughs> it's been, it's been uh, it, I feel like I've been planning in the planning phase for four years now, where, or even more than that, but, but, but diligently for the last few years. And so this is the first year where we're actually doing other things. But I think there's a point, there's a threshold where for me, like restaurants are, you know, a certain amount of time you have to devote to each one in order to keep them where you want them. And then, in return, then what happens? And so for me, it's like, how do you look at it? How, how do you use whatever it is you know? But what's the, in, what, a, in, a, in a smarter way? Well, what's the end goal then for you, right? Like just well, like the ingredients, yet, everything has a time and place. Right. Everything has a moment of peakness and right, right? Like, like it depends on the day you catch me. Like fast food, one day, fuck it, I'm just gonna go fast food. Or, or I mean, it's that's somewhat of a joke, but it's not really. And then. I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of things to think about. There's, 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 you know, ways to contribute a little more to the, you know, to the community, to the industry. There's, there, there's just so many thoughts. I don't know yet. I don't have the answer yet. Are you worried that your best days are behind you? Well, no, you know, what's the, the worst thing, you know, if you ask me what my biggest fear is, it would be unfulfilled potential. And I feel like that's what the last four years of Bennett says on. I feel like we got to a point and then I, I decided that I needed to be somewhere else in the woods. And so for those last four years, that's what I've been thinking about. And so really, I don't think I'll, I won't, I won't feel whole until I get to, you know, the Skanes Ranch platform, which is, it's already in progress. But, but what happens when you get there? I mean, here's the thing. It's like, shit, man, I could smell my own too on this shit. It's like, <laughs> whenever you get there, it's like, fuck. This is not what I wanted. You know, I thought about that a lot. And how do you cure that? Is it just a problem with me inside or us or whatever? And, and uh, I, yes and no. I think that, think that um, I've spent so much time kind of thinking about it. I've had a lot of, you know, roadblocks in the way, a lot of blockers to try to get there too, in terms of, you know, just the resources, even just to buy a property and to be able to do all that shit the way you want to do it. And then, you know, maybe even having other people like partners and stuff kind of, you know, challenge your ideas so that you, you grow a little more and your idea evolves. And so I think that for me, it's really what I want it to be. And I finally found a, a model for it that, that will be as close as I can humanly get to it being, you know, wholly satisfying. I was hoping Angler was going to be a uh, 101 different types of poke bowls. Uh, you know, I thought about doing a poke thing. <laughs> I thought about doing a poke thing. It's like, oh, it's pretty easy. You don't need a hood. You're good. <laughs> not a lot. Not a lot of build out build out costs involved. What else, What else, man? Other than angler, what are you working on? The ranch. That's really. That's really the most. That's to me. That is the 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 all consuming one, one thing. Table, it's one table. Open two days a week. I think it'll probably be. I think I'll, what what'll happen or wind up happening is I'll probably I'll probably be up there for a few months out of the year, and. It'll only be open when I'm there. I'm going to, I mean, the rule is basically I have to cook everything, right? I've got to, you know, along with people, I've got to actually have my hands in every single thing that goes onto a plate. But the and, other and, thing. And, and just so you know, he's been talking about this for many years. Yeah. And it's like weird that it's slowly happening. Because <laughs> it seemed like such a pipe dream. It's really painful. It's really fucking painful. And um, just to not be there is painful, but. 
the whole purpose, it, the biggest challenge has been I've got to step out to really do it the way I want to do it. I got to step outside of the commercial trappings of a restaurant. You can't, because there's so many things that are kind of important to me in terms of cooking that you can't possibly reach like the highest uh, level of your own craft unless you're on a farm or in the woods. And then even, well, in America, I'm saying too, because, you know, in America, you can't, you know, you can't serve, let's say like wild game isn't legal to serve. That's um, a so, rule that has to change. <laughs> no, it's good. You know about the market. You ever seen the market hunters in like the you know early 1900s, where it was like a cannon was like a shotgun shell, it was the size of a cannon. They would put it on a boat, and it was the shell was so large that the boat would shoot backwards like 20 feet when they shot it, and they would kill like 300 ducks. At well, a time. just in regulation, like regular. <laughs> like I would love to be able to serve wild duck on a menu, wouldn't you? I would, but but the the reason that all that stuff is this is because uh, uh, you know the biologists you know run these numbers. They run the numbers on conservation, and you know yeah, but like one or two. Well, you know what would be a really amazing is if there was somebody. Well, before, wouldn't you agree that one of the great joys that Americans don't understand is the taste of a, like a mallard duck of wild food in general? It's delicious. It's, it's the best. There's nothing better than than a, a, a grilled piece of elk meat or a wild duck. It's been taken care or of. Or bear. Bear is so good. Fuck, so good. Bear strami. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to get you in trouble. I don't want you to go down this rabbit hole about about bears. <laughs> <laughs> well, bears are delicious, especially when they eat all the blueberries. That's and the berries, why. And you cut them open. They taste. They smell like berries, and then you make bear strami out of it. <laughs> but all of that stuff is really is really like you know that's that's the reference point for taste that we're missing out on in America because we don't have, you know, we're so preconditioned by like, you know, Cheetos, which I love. I love Cheetos too. The UK has wild game on them. You're allowed to serve wild game. I think- I, I just want to be able to serve wild game. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. The the challenge is market hunting. We we decimated the population in the early, by the early 1900s, you know, once Teddy Roosevelt enacted all that conservation acts, it was just basically there was like a thousand elk left. Did you learn all this shit when you studied for your GED? <laughs> <laughs> it's culinary school. <laughs> um, so this is a question that I can't even answer myself. And when I hear your career, where you want to go it is going to be an annoying question, but do you consider yourself more of an artist or craftsman? Right? Because the way you speak, it's like businessman is the furthest thing from your mind, even though you wish you were like those things were taken care of. So you don't have to worry about it. Right. Would you want to make a nice living through food? Absolutely. But it's like, to me, when one of my investors said, you're like an artist, David, I was like, fuck you. I was yeah. so pissed off. Yeah. It's, it just means that like a, I'm a completely absent-minded in everything else. Oh, I think the same way. But when I say it to you, I'm not saying it as a, as a, as a slight. Right. I'm really not. I'm simply saying like, I feel like you're one of the few people that I know that is like pursuing this sheerly as a personal form of expression. That you are on this journey to get to the mountaintop. And every time you get to the mountaintop, there's like fucking a higher peak. You know what I mean? And to me, that's like some kind of vision quest shit. I don't know. But how you express that through your food to me is artistry. Without a doubt, a lot of craftsmanship. I, I'm not saying that, but I would say if you were Japanese, that's shokunin level stuff. But shokunin level stuff gets capped out of just being a craftsman, right? I feel like you're on a different journey and I don't know quite exactly how to categorize it if you is even bothersome to do so but you know there's more artistry to what you want to do than i think 
I've ever thought, you know, just talking to you about this stuff. I know that I consider, like, if I think about it, I consider myself, it's just craft. Because craft, you know, there's these levels of craft where, you know, you, you, you know, get to a certain point, you learn how to dice a shallot. What does that really mean? Like, does the fact that you, you know, after, you know, 100,000 shallots, do you, you know, learn that your knife has to be a certain sharpness so that the cells don't burst in the shallot and the shallot has to be peeled, you know, as soon as you use it. And then as soon as you slice that shallot, you have to put that shallot in whatever sort of hydration that you need to put it in so that it no longer oxidizes. Otherwise, the flavor completely changes and you lose all the nuance of the shallot. So is that really craft or is that, I think it's just craft. I think there's just levels to it. Well, at I think a it's a fucking caring, right? Which is why no one knows how to fucking cut shallots anymore. <laughs> That's yeah. just what I accept. I accept that. Like, no one knows how to cut chives. <laughs> no one knows how to cut shallots anymore. Well, but I think that, that that ability, though, to to let's say you just take a shallot that's, you know, me find Well, what you said to me is like, of course, but to everyone, I won't say everyone, but other people would be like, what's the big fucking deal? Well, the, the flavor changes, right? So you get you take a shallot to from, a, you know, the regular taste that you get in, let's say, most places to a taste. It's like, oh, wow, this salad's very sweet. This is delicious. This is a really enjoyable shallot in my salad. But when I you're pursuing, though, that ineffable quality that's constantly a moving target to me— the fact that you are like meta about the food, that to me is much more of an expression of oneself. And if yeah. that is one expression, like that's where it's like, I don't ever want to think of you as an artist, but there's certainly more of that. I think I just get lost in the, in the, cause that's the martial arts part where it's like, you know, you repeat this action over and over and over again to not only enjoy the process or learn about yourself through the process, but I, well, maybe that's really what it is at the end of the day. Yeah. It's really just learning about oneself through the process of whatever you're doing. And lastly, I'll just end it on this. For any young cook that is listening and they're like, shit, like, I want to be like him. What's your advice, right? And I'm going to, it's not a good question. Basically, I'm saying this is like, do your fucking homework, <laughs> right? Wouldn't you agree? Like, study like a motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah, I would actually say do the opposite of what I did. Go work for the best people for a, a long period of time, but you got to take take into that process what is really genuine, right? And not for the sake of Instagram or, you know, anything other than what's real, if that makes sense. I feel like if you go down that path and you really devote yourself to trying to look inside a little a little more than than outside, you're going to wind up in the right place. This is the dangerous advice too. It's like, and you've seen this, you could work for the best chefs and have the most amazing resume and never learn how to develop your own voice. Right. It happens all the time. How do you tell someone that balance of keep on studying, read everything possible, yet keep an open mind, right? Learn, but keep an open mind. That's a delicate thing that I have a really hard time explaining to younger cooks or chefs or sous chefs that are trying to figure it out. I'm just using a martial arts analogy. So there's, you know, there's a certain reality to like sparring, let's say, practicing martial arts. You know, you either go in there and you spar and you get kicked in the face or you don't, right? So whatever you want to think about your techniques or your methods or your speed or whatever it is, you either got kicked or you didn't. And so if you can root your kind of thought process in that reality for martial arts you can do the same thing for cooking and so okay cool i got kicked i, I got to improve what else do i need you know what else can i do and so maybe to me right now you empty your cup all the way and say 
you know, does this really taste good? Is it feeding someone? Is it, you know, you go down the list of your own personal questions and figure out. But if you took an average of, let's say, you know, 100 chefs, 100 of the best chefs in the world who were actually, you know, craftspeople and really, you know, knew their am, shit. Am, am I on that list? <laughs> 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 you took an average. You took an average of all those guys. You would probably have somewhat of a, and you're gonna, you're going to filter through those people, right? So the people you put on that you know mental list are going to be people that know their shit, and and you're going to come up with some sort of an average that's relatively similar in terms of you know yes or no. Does this taste good? You know, does this have enough taste balance? Is this uh, actually feeding? You know the guest you see where i'm going with this yeah i, I, so, I do and so and, but but i feel like actually the, the the thread to this is something that we should finish on is you need to be on a journey of fucking shit up your own mistakes regardless and making your own mistakes is crucial to discovering your own voice and i don't know how to encourage people to fuck up because it's really hard and part of your martial arts training has allowed you to realize like, oh, I'm not going to get better unless I get kicked in the face, <laughs> unless I go through pain and suffering. Using the shitty term of like a return on investment, I'm wondering how much pain and suffering do you need to go through to get what you want? And it, is it actually worth it when you get it? I don't have an answer for that. And, and I'm trying to think like a younger cook or chef that's trying to get to an end goal. And what I find more and more that their realization is, I don't want to go through what you wanted to go through. Yeah. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them either. And I think it's a smart thing to do these days because there's a, when we started cooking, there wasn't that information out there. And so now you've got the world at your fingertips. You can, you can make intelligent decisions. Yeah. You can make calculated decisions, right? You can do the, you can do the diligence. You can, you can see what's going on and you don't have to make stupid decisions, even <laughs> though you will anyway. But I don't know how to separate the goal of if you really want to have your own voice and do your own thing, you have to take that chance. And I think there's no way around taking that chance, that solo journey where it's not going to be hard, man. It's going to be fucking hard as fuck. It's going to be super hard. And the fucked up part is that it's not going to work for everybody. Yeah. And I have no idea what to say to that. Which is why I don't blame anyone. to be like, well, fuck that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Josh, we spoke for a while. I know that we could continue talking. I'm excited that we're one of the, probably the first time anyone's ever heard your life story. <laughs> right? I, don't I think know. so. Right? That's pretty amazing. <laughs> so. That's pretty amazing. Thanks, buddy. Thank you for letting appreciate it happen it, here. I appreciate you bringing me here. Visit his restaurants, Angler's Opening Up, Saison, one of the great restaurants in the world today. That's coming from me. I genuinely believe that. And one of the great talents America's produced. No bullshit. So thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. All right, buddy.